Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years' experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I 270 and MD 85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1 800 Gambler. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. How's everybody doing? Are you doing all right? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you. That's good to hear. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the premier music network. If you are new around here, we encourage you to go back and listen to some of our older episodes dating back to 2019. You can pretty much guarantee we have something else that you will enjoy across many genres. And if you look through our list of older episodes and notice there is no jazz... Try our new spinoff podcast, Audio Judo Does Jazz. Please. 16-part series to introduce you to the world of jazz. Hosted by our friend and jazz spirit guide, Chris, you will not be disappointed if you tune in. This week, Kyle has chosen his second album with Purple in the title. I have, yes. This week we were talking about Stone Temple Pilots' Purple. In fact, Purple is the only part of the title of this album. Yeah. That could be some sort of record, right? It could. You chose Purple Rain last summer. Mm Mm-hmm. Now you chose Purple. I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna have to find some other albums with the title, with the word purple in the title. You're going to have to look pretty hard. I'm going to have to look pretty hard, I think. Uh, Kyle, I uh, need to point something out. Uh, Go ahead. I feel like we are getting into this weird kind of gray area. Mm-hmm. This is our third album in a row mm-hmm. that covers 1994 to 1995. Yes. And what I'm starting to realize uh, is that albums that I really enjoyed at that time mm-hmm. do not resonate for me the same now. I would tend to agree with you. A lot of the albums from that time period are definitely of that time period. Yes. You know what I mean? They, yes. they, they were, when you were listening to them in the 90s, it was like, this is really good music. And you go back and listen to them now and you're like, this is really mediocre yeah. music. Especially the grunge records that we were all so devoted to and hungry yes. for. I loved those records at the time. And maybe this one, not as much as the others when they were first released, but time has not been very kind. No. Stone Temple Pilots yeah. were uh, formed uh, where? Oh, I was just going to say, oh. uh, one of the things that I, I think about when I think about the grunge era, yeah. there, there's kind of a, a an A team and a B team in the grunge era. Oh, see, I yeah, I, ha- I talk later on oh, about wh- a big five. Okay. I have like a big five. Yeah, they're the A team. And then there's a lot of bands, like if you told ask somebody to list their top three grunge bands from the 90s, chances are Stone Temple Pilots are not going to be in there. No. Good, good band. Yes. Lots of good music. But- not that top tier. No, I would I would put them if we're if we're talking specifically about grunge bands mm-hmm. and the grunge sound. 
I would probably put them in the top five, but I feel like there's a huge disparity between number four and number five. Okay. And that's fair. Because I think there's some other bands that could fall in there. Like, I, it, I'm, we're, we're a little bit of ways away. We'll, 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 we'll loop back around. Let's circle back let's, around to that. Yeah, let's, let's talk about uh, Stone Temple Pilots a little bit. Okay. So like you said, formed in San Diego, California. Uh, originally, um, Scott Wayland, the lead singer of the band, teamed up with his high school friend, Corey Highcock. To form the band uh, Soy Desant, hmm. which is the most pretentious name I've ever heard. From Very much ever. so. Uh, it means self-named or self-styled or so-called. Is it French? Uh, I do not believe it is. It, is I mean, it? It, it may be French in origin, but it's an English. It was in Merriam's so. Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Oh, so. oh, they went to the dictionary, did they? Yeah. Um, they recruited uh, David Allen as their drummer. Hmm. Um, and there are actually two stories about how Scott Wayland and Robert DeLeo uh, met. Did you see either of these? Mm-hmm. So uh, you want to do one of them? No. Oh, okay. I'll do, do both. So the first story, the fun story, is that uh, Wayland and DeLeo were at a Black Flag concert in Long Beach in 1985. Uh, they were talking about their respective girlfriends, and they realized they were dating the same woman. Yeah. So <laughs> they both broke up with her. As you uh, do. But they became friends and then formed this band. You keep saying Wayland. Is it Wayland? I've always pronounced it Wayland. Okay. I wasn't it, sure if it's Wieland? Wieland or Wayland. Let's go with Wayland. Okay, I've always pronounced it Wayland, but I don't know if that's honestly how it's pronounced or not. So we're going to call him Wayland. Uh, if we're wrong, email in and let us know, and then we'll just uh, we'll go back and dub, redub every time we say his name, which is probably like 150 times for this episode. So Randy, you'll have to go back and we'll just go Wayland. So everything will be like. So I was talking about Scott Wayland. That's perfect. Okay, good. I think I pronounce it Wayland because of Wayland Smithers. From The Simpsons. Yeah, but I feel it would be spelled differently. But we'll go with Wayland. All right. Well, anyways, the second story, which probably is more true because it's from Robert DeLeo's autobiography, uh, says that uh, Wayland and his friend, uh, guitarist Corey Highcock, uh, and their drummer, David Allen, they saw DeLeo play in a club and then asked him to perform with them. So either way, uh, David Allen went his own way after a couple of years, and Wayland and DeLeo recruited Eric Kretz after seeing him perform at a club in Long Beach. Weird. They were all around Long Beach. Long Beach. Um, Corey Highcock also left the band in 1989. And after auditioning a lot of different guitarists, Robert suggested his older brother, Dean DeLeo, uh, he had gone on. He had been a musician and kind of gave up and went on and became a successful businessman. But he was convinced to come back and, and play with the band as long as they changed their name. Uh, because at the time, they were going by the name Swing. <laughs> so it's a little bit better than Soy de Sound. Right. Uh, but basically, uh, Dean said he would not play in a band named Swing, so they picked a new name called uh, Mighty Joe Young. Mighty Joe Young. So are you familiar with where that comes from? Well, I don't know where they got it from. I know why they had to stop using it. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, so Mighty Joe Young is a film from 1949, an RKO film. About an ape, isn't it? Yes. Surprisingly enough, it very closely follows the 1933 version of King Kong. Mm. Really closely. Similar storylines. Uh, but it tells the story of a young woman named Jill Young uh, who lives with her father. Uh, excuse me. She lives on her father's ranch in Africa. And she's raised uh, this 12-foot-tall gorilla from an infant that's named Mighty Joe Young. As you do. Uh, she's persuaded by this nightclub owner uh, who is in Africa to find attractions for his new Hollywood nightclub to bring Joe to America to be his star attraction. And she needs a bunch of money, so she agrees. I wrote down hilarity ensues and then horror. Uh, <laughs> Mighty Joe Young, surprisingly enough, breaks out of his cage and goes on a rampage inside the nightclub. Mm. Uh, a judge orders Joe to be shot, but Jill stages a daring escape. During the escape, they find an orphanage on fire, and Joe saves several children from being injured by a falling wall. He basically stops the wall wow. from falling over. 
He survives and his life is spared because he's a hero and eventually everybody returns to Africa and lives happily ever after. So that's presumably where they picked it from. However, Mighty Joe Young was also a very famous blues guitarist named Joseph Young Jr. who uh, from Chicago, who took his name from the same movie. So Mighty Joe Young, the band, had played several gigs in and around San Diego and started to build up a fan base in the 80s and 90s. They went to the studio to begin working on their first album. Uh, with uh, producer engineer Brendan O'Brien. And during their time in the studio, they got a call from their lawyer who said, hey, there's a Chicago blues guy named Mighty Joe Young. Uh, you probably need to change that. Mm. So so they did. They were sitting around and in a sort of weirdo, bizarro world, reverse order of things, they picked their initials first, uh, STP, uh, from the old STP motor oil ads uh, and stickers that apparently they used to put on everything when they were kids, which uh, that one actually stands for Scientifically Treated Petroleum. Yeah. Just put that on my big wheel. Weirdly, petroleum will come around in this set of notes again. <laughs> yeah, I I had a whole bunch of them on my uh, hot, uh, not my Hot Wheels. Wait, my, petroleum's uh, going to come out. My power come wheels. around again. Petroleum's going to come around again. How deep are your notes? Very deep on this one for wow. some reason. Do you have a couple of the names that they they picked to, for STP? Yes, uh, Stereo Temple Pirates mm-hmm. and Shirley Temple's Pussy. Mm-hmm. That would have been fantastic. Uh, the only one other one on my list was a stinky toilet paper. <laughs> it's a pretty good one for you know if you're a 12 year old rock band i think that'd be a great one <laughs> we are stinky toilet paper Dude, that's funny but they eventually landed on stone temple pilots uh yes they did most people still just call them stp stp so, so here, go ahead oh, okay, no, me, no, wait, no, you, oh, what you go ahead i was gonna this is where i was gonna take a little bit of a diversion oh let's do it so here's a question for you who who would you consider to be the big five bands of the grunge movement oh, so for sure nirvana yep um Pearl Jam. I put you on the spot. Yep. That's all that's coming to my brain right okay, now. Okay. Well, you got the first two. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, oh, okay, Alice in Chains. Oh, yes. And Stone Temple Pilots. Okay. And, and I would say bands like Smashing Pumpkins and Rage Against the Machine kind of get an honorable mention, but Pumpkins are a little more melodic mm-hmm. and, and Rage is a little rougher. I would but, say not quite grungy right, enough. Which is kind of why I left them off. But like I said, STP... The distance between number four and number five is pretty significant. It's part of their shtick. It seemed like imitation to me. While the songs were okay, you know, they were just okay and not great. Yeah. That first album, Core, which I think we're going to talk about. Oh, we'll get around to Which it, yeah. I thought was their best, was also weirdly uneven. The drummer used to lo- lose the tempo all the time, and he used to drive my brother and I crazy when we listened to that <laughs> record, because we're both drummers. And I guess his voice never carried the weight that Lane Staley or Chris Cornell's would carry. Sad fact right there, by the way, of the bands that I mentioned, those five, the only one with a lead singer still alive is Eddie Vedder <sighs> and Pearl Jam. And that's crazy and tragic at the same yes, time. Yes, it is. Anyway, the only reason that I bring that up is because while I enjoyed this album when it first came out, it was never high on my list of must-listens. And I think one of the things we are most likely going to talk about in the track by track is that unevenness that I mentioned. Oh, yeah. There are some really great songs on this record. And then- There's there, some real stinkers. There aren't. Yeah. Um, do you want to go back to the history? Here? Oh, yeah, a little bit, yeah. I was just going to say, uh, STP is also a street drug. Is it really? Uh, DOM, or STP, for Serenity, Tranquility, and Peace. Was it always that? Or uh, So this came from 1963. Oh, uh, whoa. Uh, okay. uh, I guess you would call him a scientist named Alexander Shulgin, uh, was investigating the effects of four-position substitutions on psychedelic amphetamines. Because mm-hmm. that's what you did in the 60s in uh, San Francisco. Sure. In mid-1967. Probably had a grant to do it, too. <laughs> Probably. 
in mid-1967, uh, he distributed some tablets of STP in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco uh, have, that were manufactured uh, in an underground chemist, chemistry lab by uh, Owsley Stanley and Tim Scully. That's a good place to try things like that out. Yeah, you know, an Hate underground Ash- chemistry lab. Haight-Ashbury? Yeah, you know. yeah. This proved really disastrous, though, for several reasons. Uh, first, the tablets contained an excessively high dose of the chemical, and combined with its really slow onset of effects and its remarkably long duration, it caused many users to panic and sent some to the emergency room. Uh, second, the treatment for such Wuss. overdoses was complicated by the fact that no one at the time knew that the tablets that everybody was calling STP were actually dumb. Oh, just in case you're curious, the effects Whoops. of SCP include uh, substantial perceptual changes, such as blurred vision, multiple images, vibration of objects, oh. visual alterations, distorted shapes, enhancement of details, slowed passage of time, increased sexual drive, and increased contrasts. It may also cause pupillary dilation and a rise in systolic blood pressure. Sounds like a good time. Right? A lot of people that have taken it have said it's a mystical experience that changes your consciousness. Right. Sounds great, right? Peyote. So, enough about mind expansion. Uh, like you were saying before, the band's debut album, Core, came out in 1992, and it was actually a major commercial success. Yes, well, because it was released at exactly the right time. It was perfect. You could not have timed this better had you tried. Pushed by such singles as Sex Type Thing, Wicked Garden, and Plush, it shot its way all the way to number three on the Billboard album chart. It would eventually sell over 8 million copies. Also won a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance for Plush. It's a classic album, without a doubt. And then they toured consistently over the next year with the likes of Rage Against the Machine and Megadeth. That's an odd combo right there. Yeah. Wasn't quite sure about that. And a two and a half long uh, headlining tour before returning to the studio in the spring of 94 to record this record. Yeah. They would complete this record, Purple, in under a month. Yeah. Releasing it in on June 7th, 1994. At which point it debuted at number one on the Billboard Top 100. Testament to Testament more to the strength of grunge at the time. Yeah. I believe than the strength of this record as a whole. Uh you got you got the numbers on this? I do. I'm Let me sure skip you skip ahead a couple you of pages. Yeah, like a gajillion pages. I got like a million pages here. of notes over here. Interstate Love Song uh set a record with 15 weeks at the top of the rock tracks charts. Uh sold over 6 million copies, uh 3 million in just the first 3 months. It's certified six times platinum in the U.S., three times platinum in Canada with 300,000 units, platinum in Australia with 70,000 units, platinum in New Zealand with 15,000 units, and silver in the U.K. with 60,000 units. Hmm. Fairly well-regarded album, surprisingly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I went ahead and read that Rolling Stone review, and yeah. it, was, uh, it, it was complimentary in a backhanded sort of way. Right. But still praised it. Yeah. Suggested you go get it. It is uh, it is ranked 438th in the 500 Greatest Rock and Metal Albums of All Time, the 2005 edition. It is ranked number 73 in Guitar World's 100 Greatest Albums of All Time, 2006. Uh, Loudwire placed it at number 6 on its 10 Best Hard Rock Albums of 1994 list. That one's, uh, that's fine. The July 2014 Guitar World ranked Purple as number 24 in their super unknown 50 iconic albums that define 1994 list. Holy moly. Holy moly. And then, like you said, uh, Rolling Stone in 2019 ranked the album as number 24 on its list of the 50 greatest grunge albums. Mm. I'd like to see that list. I didn't, I didn't, I missed that one. But it, it has some successful singles for sure. Vaseline and Interstate Love Song were and still are 90s rock staples. Yes. Uh, you can hear them at any given time on Lithium. Just turn it on. I'm sure one of them playing right now. Yeah, I'm sure. They are catchy. They're interesting. And therein lies the dichotomy 
of Stone Temple Pilots for me. They write these wonderfully catchy pop songs with interesting and strong melodies, and then they have these stinkers in there that don't make any sense at all. <laughs> and it's very frustrating because you, you can hear, even in, in the shitty songs, you can hear if you just, you're like, you're, tweak, you're a tweak away from having another gem. Yeah. And it just goes a, a weird direction. It's like, mm, uh. I've always wondered if that was intentional or if it was just somebody that did not have the experience that was not telling them. Like, you know, a lot of times bands will have somebody there, a producer or whoever, who's got this experience, who's like, oh, you know what you need to do to make this really go number one is do this. Well, you'd think Brendan O'Brien, who was essentially yeah. the grunge producer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Pearl Jam, Rage, all these other bands that he produced, you'd think he would be the one to say, "Yeah, you're 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 almost there. It just needs a tweak." You would instead think so. of just letting Meat Plow go through and and everyone go, "What the fuck?" Yeah, I I don't know, man. I do know there is one other thing that it could be. It's kind of in that same vein. Uh, they tried very hard to keep uh, uh, studio executives out of the recording studio. Yeah. So okay. so Brendan O'Brien basically kept people out of the studio from the uh, record company. He was just like, we're not doing this. You go away while we make the album. Well, they recorded it so fast, too. That right? That there wasn't a chance for anybody to get in and listen to it. Exactly. So I kind of think maybe that, you know, for all the, you know, oh, the studio or the executives are going to come in and meddle with the sound. Sometimes maybe that's a good thing. Where they come in and they make suggestions that are like, oh, yeah, this is going to improve it, or this is going to make this sound a little better. For for an established band, I think you want to keep them out. But for a band, this is your second record. I know you sold like a whole crap ton of records the first time, but, you know. Yeah. You, you may have fared well with, with some advice. Yeah. You have more? You want to go to the oh, cover, my, cover art? I have so much more. Oh, my God. So, uh, lineup for this album. Uh, oh. Scott Whalen, obviously, like we said, lead oh, yeah. vocals. Uh, Dean DeLeo on electric acoustic, electric and acoustic guitars, uh, percussion on Pretty Penny, uh, and the drum ending on Silver Gun Superman. Don't, uh, don't worry, we'll talk about that. Right. Uh, Robert DeLeo, bass, additional guitars on uh, pretty much everything. Eric Kretz, drums and percussion. Brendan O'Brien, who uh, obviously we said is the producer, but uh, also played uh, Mellotron on a couple of, on Army Ants. Uh, he also uh, did the, oh God, he was the producer. He did all the recording, he did all the mixing, and he did percussion on uh, a few of these songs as well. Nick Didia, mm -hmm. who was sort of uh, Brendan O'Brien's right-hand man for it about 20 years. Essentially the engineer. Right? Yeah. Um, he worked with so many 80s rock bands, I can't even list them all, but some of the biggest ones, Bon Jovi, Skid Row, Cinderella, Rage Against the Machine, Pearl Jam, Bruce Springsteen. He was an engineer for just about everybody famous between 1980 and 2015. Uh, Karim Costanzo, who worked closely with Nick Didia on this album. Uh, he was basically the assistant engineer, but he's worked with a bunch of different people as well. Pearl Jam, Rage Against the Machine, Guns N' Roses, which sadly he co-produced uh, Chinese Democracy, so womp womp for that. But well, It took him like 40 <laughs> years to record it. Uh, but he also helped produce uh, Axl Rose's Looney Tunes song, Rock the Rock, from 2019, which is very interesting. Oh, boy. I've <laughs> never heard of that until I saw it here. Uh, Bob Ludwig, who's uh, another one of those behind-the-scenes guys who doesn't get enough credit. He does the mastering he, on pretty much every record ever made. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, the list, Rush, Dire Straits. Uh, oh, you don't want to list that. Creedence Clearwater Revival. There's so many. I have heard, uh, I'm not going to list all of them, but uh, the Rolling Stones. Uh, I have, however, heard that uh, apparently his remaster of Permanent Waves is not very highly regarded oh, amongst really? Rush fans. But, I don't know how true that is. I was going to ask you about it, but uh, um, I have a feeling I'm going to open a can of worms, so... Uh, 
I'm going to blow right past that and we'll come I back to it some a, other time. I have absolutely no problem with the remastering of that record. So, uh, and then Paul Leary, uh, the lead guitarist from the Butthole Surfers, uh, does the ending guitar solo on Loungefly. Yes. Still one of the best band names ever. Butthole Surfers. Butthole Surfers. The the old uh, Butthole Surfers. We start singing Pepper now. Be, oh, God, I'm sorry. Time. So the cover, the cover uh, to this yeah. album. Uh, it's an illustration of a small child writing a, I'm not sure this word, Killin? Killin. Keelan, mm-hmm. with a bunch of fairies flying around it. A mm-hmm. Keelan, a mythical hooved creature of Chinese or Asian culture. It's like a dragon with antlers. Yeah. Uh, it was designed by John Hyden. Uh, he worked as a graphic designer for Warner Brothers for many, many years before founding Smog, which is a boutique design firm from Silver Lake, California. He's done some really amazing uh, music-related design work. And if you want to go check it out, it's smogdesign.com. I thought he just did the like the, the packaging. He also did the back cover photo. Okay. He, he did a lot of the design for this one. Dale the illustration Sizer. is th- by Dale Sizer. Dale Sizer. Yeah. Also, nowhere on the cover does it say purple in English. Nope, only in Chinese. Uh, with the Chinese character Z, which mm-hmm. is Chinese for purple. It's a unique cover and mm-hmm. release. The original vinyl release was on purple wax as well, which is yes. also cool. Also on the rear of the vinyl or the CD, there was no track listing at all. It just said 12 Gracious Melodies, while a nice touch. Well, it says 12 Gracious Melodies in, in frosting on a cake. Correct. Uh, I'm sure it made it difficult for the casual fan if they were just looking for the album that had that highway song. Yeah. But like you said, the original illustration was done by an artist named Dale Sizer, who lists himself as a rockabilly artist now. And check out his website yeah. if you if you haven't. This stuff is actually really cool. He does a whole bunch of cool like pinup girls and stuff. And uh, uh, I kind of want to go into that actually. Oh yeah. So uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about for this cover. So uh, first of all, the Keelan. Sometimes they're called. Uh, they're very well known all throughout Asian culture. In uh, Japanese, they're called the Kirin. And that's what they're mostly known as in English as well. Uh, they're mythical hooved chimeras. So they're rumored to appear with the imminent arrival or passing of a sage or illustrious leader. Uh, and they're described in varying different ways, some of which contradict one another. Generally, however, they resemble a Chinese dragon with big eyes, thick eyelashes, a mane that always flows upward, a beard, and one single antler right in the middle of their head. Uh, the body usually has some scales and it's often shaped like a deer or a horse or an ox. Uh, they are always shown with cloven hooms, and they are sometimes depicted with parts of their bodies on fire. According to Taoist mythology, although they can look fearsome, they only punish the wicked. Uh, there are legends of court trials and judgments based on Keelan, divinely knowing whether defendants are good or evil, guilty or innocent. Uh, in Buddhist-influenced depictions, Keelan will refuse to walk upon grass for fear of harming a single blade, and thus are often depicted walking upon the clouds or on water, like on the cover of this album. Uh, they take great care when they walk never to tread on a living creature. Keelan can become fierce if a pure person is threatened by a malicious one, spouting flames from their mouths and exercising other fearsome powers. Uh, and Keelan are also thought to be a symbol of luck, good omens, protection, prosperity, success, and longevity by the Chinese. They're also a symbol of fertility and often depicted as bringing a baby to the family. But what does it have to do? Baby riding on the back right there. What does it have to do with the record? What does it have to do with the record? Well, think about all those things. <laughs> <laughs> Brings uh, prosperity, ah, good luck, luck, good omens, protection, babies. success, longevity. Sure, okay. Babies. There's a baby on top of it, and we got to talk about that baby too. So uh, that child's pose, it's got its hand in the air, it's waving. Yeah. That's a mirror, a mirrored image, but not a direct reference to the cover of Johnny Mathis's album Olay, where he's dressed up in a suit and in front of a, an illustration of three horses with his right arm up at up over his head. Right, which references the... the Which we'll get back to. Right. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get around. I wanted to bring it up. You, Del- you went deep. I fell into a rabbit hole. Good and here's, God, man. Here's an even deeper rabbit hole. So there's five 
by fairies in, on the Wikipedia page. It calls them fairies, fairies but they're yeah. basically women floating up over the top of the baby. Women floating. That so, sounds like fairies, right? Those actually come from two influential places. So first, have you ever heard of the Cottingly Fairies pictures? No. Of course not. Uh, it's a series of five photos taken by Elise Wright and Francis Griffiths. That sounded uh, really snippy, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. That's it's, fair. Of course not. Of course it didn't. Rube. You idiot. <laughs> you rube. Uh, anyways, it was uh, taken by these two girls, uh, Elise Wright and Francis Griffiths, uh, two young cousins who lived in Cottingly near Bradford in England. They took the first two photographs in 1917 when Elise was 16 years old and Francis was nine. They became incredibly famous because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle found out about the picture, pictures and used them to illustrate an article on fairies he was writing for uh, the Christmas 1920 edition of The Strand magazine. Mm. Uh, Doyle, who was a spiritualist, was enthusiastic about the photographs and interpreted them as a clear and visible evidence of psychic phenomenon. If we look at them now, it's like, that looks so fake. But at the time, people believed it. Public reaction was really mixed. Some people accepted them as genuine and others believed they had been faked. Um, they're very well known to this day amongst a lot of uh, designers and things, just because they were pretty well done. In 1983, uh, the cousins admitted that the photographs were faked by copying illustrations of dancing girls from a popular children's book, Princess Mary's Gift Book, uh, and drawing wings on them. What's interesting about that is the poses that they use heavily influenced pinup artists Okay, from World War II era. Dan, I'm sorry, Dale, Dale Sizer. Sizer, yeah. Heavily influenced by pinup girls, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? I feel like there's a little bit of influence there, just because for the, him, sure, for him, yeah. And I'm saying it; he it influenced his design of this cover, sure. Uh, the second influence, uh, if you ever heard of the Chinese story of Tian Jianpei? Yes, no. It's often no. translated <laughs> as the the fairy couple, the fairy couple, or the cowherder and the weaver girl. Ah, no. Yeah. Okay. So it's a legend that it's existed. It's one of the oldest legends in Chinese history. Oh, uh, it's man, existed gotta, in oral tradition up. for thousands of years. The first reference to it is over 2,000 years old in a Chinese book called Classic of Poetry. No, we have some Chinese listeners out there. Let me know what you think about it. I know you never will because right? you can't get your emails out of, out of the country, but still. Totally understandable. I'm totally going to script this basic story, but I'm going to go for it anyways. Uh, seven fairy daughters of the Jade Emperor travel to the mortal world. Uh, the youngest is searching for her lost weaving equipment and her coat of feathers, which she uses to fly. Uh, she meets a cow herder named Dong Yong, who has her weaving equipment and her coat of feathers. <laughs> Depending upon which version of the story you believe, he either stole them or found them. Uh, the weaver girl falls in love with Dong Yong, but he is poor and has sold himself into servitude to pay for his father's funeral. The seventh fairy enlists the help of her sisters to weave ten pieces of intricate silk fabric with gold and silver threads throughout, which she then uses to shorten Dong Yong's indentured servitude to 100 days. Before his time is up, however, the Jade Emperor orders his daughters to return home. However, he is kind enough to allow the couple to re reunite once a year on the seventh day of the seventh lunar month by crossing a bridge made of magpies over the heavenly river. It all As makes sense. Uh, the, the legend originated from people's worship of natural celestial phenomenon and later developed into the Kixi festival uh, during the Han dynasty. Uh, ancient Chinese astronomers named two prominent stars that stand at a distance from each other, Cowherd Man and Weaving Girl. Uh, that is Altair in the constellation Aquila and Vega in the constellation Lyra. Uh, the, heavenly, Man. the Heavenly River is the Milky Way in between them. You could give two shits about any of this, couldn't you? I no, could I'm, see it no I'm listening. <laughs> Listen to every bit of this. So this is a long road. I'm just trying to figure to out how many days it took you to dig yourself out oh of that my God, hole, dude. So there's a famous film version of this short story by the Shaw brothers called Shishan Yu, uh, or in China, uh, in English, or A Maid from Heaven in English that came out in 1963. 
a more direct translation is uh, Seven Immortals. The imagery from that film is almost identical to the way that these women are drawn on the cover. It's very, very similar. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Shaw Brothers, they were early pioneers in Chinese cinema from the 1920s. Very famous. They started. Uh, they've done over a thousand films. Their company, excuse me, their company has done over a thousand films uh, since then, uh, and they helped popularize uh, kung fu and Hong Kong action movies. Wow. So uh, heavily influenced people like Quentin Tarantino yeah, uh, and a yeah. lot of the other directors that had grown up with those type of movies in the U.S. and then started to direct in the 90s. So why only five fairies on the cover? Yeah, why? Uh, instead of seven. So five is a very important number in Chinese numerology. The number five is associated with the five elements, water, fire, earth, wood, and metal, which are a major part of the five phases or Wu Jing, which is a five-sided conceptual scheme that many traditional Chinese fields use to explain a wide array of phenomena from cosmic cycles to the interaction between internal organs and from the succession of political regimes to the properties of medicinal drugs. Also, because of its relation to the elements, the number five is historically associated with the emperor of China, whose eminent arrival or passing is often, if you will remember from before, signified by the Keelan. Mm. Boom. Full circle. Full circle. I think that, you know, again, I fell down a gigantic rabbit hole, and I'm sorry if I dragged everybody through a huge and boring waste of space and time. No, no. You're going to just hate yourself now for wasting your life. But uh, I feel like before we go into the track by track, you want to take a quick break? Uh, sure. All right. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. So, uh, before we take a, oh, before we go to the track by track, before we go to the track by track, you had more and I just, I just steam, I plowed right over you there. You almost meat plowed right over me. Almost meat plowed right over you. Uh, Go ahead, please. When asked why the name of the album is purple. Scott Whelan responded with, it's my favorite color. It's the color of bruises. So, you know, uh, other than that, there's really nothing about purple about this album, this album cover, or any related song or song um, lyric that I could find. What, are you kidding me? What? Uh, every song on here is a Prince cover. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I it's, knew uh, it. Uh, I just, it sounds like he liked the word. So, I'd like to circle back around. Okay, let's do it. Uh, before we start the track by track, just something I brought up before. The big mm-hmm. five grunge band. Yes. Uh, because I'd like to talk for a second about what each of them brought to the table and how they differed. I know we're going to get pushback on some of this. I expect it because that era elicits such strong emotions because uh, it's an era that changed the musical landscape for several years. Let's start with Nirvana. This is the grunge band, the ones that theoretically started it all, the godfathers of grunge, as it were. They only released two albums. Let's remember that. But I would say, besides being... Actually, three. Besides being the first, uh, they brought the hooks to grunge. Just about everything on Nevermind has a hook. You know? It's catchy. Yeah. Even parts of In In Utero were catchy, but less so as Kurt Cobain was trying to do something different. He was trying to separate himself. Pearl Jam brought the lyrics, even though... You can't really understand them. Brought the intelligence to grunge. Introspective, thoughtful lyrics wrapped in some catchy Seattle crunch was the counterpoint to Nirvana. Okay. Um, Songs like Jeremy touched on some really heady subjects. Uh, Soundgarden brought this unbridled musicianship to the landscape. And they had Chris Cornell, who may have had the best voice in all of music at that particular time. Allison Chains brought the darkness to grunge. And the chains. Uh, Man in the Box was one of the creepiest videos I remember seeing at the time. <laughs> and Lane Staley's voice was so recognizable and heavy. And then there's STP. And I have to wonder what it was that they brought that was unique. And for me, and this is just me, 
I think they tried to be an amalgam of all those other bands at the same time. They took bits and pieces from every single one. Uh, they attempted it, but it wasn't really there. And I know a lot of people are listening going, Nirvana had great lyrics too, and Alice in Chains brought, had just good musicians. I know. These are my opinions. That's just how it sounds. You know, I'm eventually I'm going to do Bad Motorfinger by Soundgarden and prove everybody wrong that Ooh. those were absolutely the best musicians around. Hmm. But that's just me. Well, that's, uh, I just wanted to talk about that. The, that's a f- just leading into the track by track and how a lot of these songs get interpreted. So it's a very fair assessment, I feel. And that's one of the things that is difficult about doing anything like this. Any album we pick, any time period we pick, you're going to make some people angry and you're going to make some people happy. Somebody's going to get pissed. Somebody's going to get pissed. That's my favorite album. And you said it sounded like poop. And then somebody's going to be like, you know, I hate that album. And I'm so mad that you guys liked it. You you can't ever please everybody. Mm. So everybody has their own opinions. And our whole goal with this is just to get people to listen to new music. They might not have ever heard before. True. And we do that by kind of saying whether or not we think that people are going to want to listen to it or not. I agree with that assessment. So, Yeah. I mean, I don't know where I'm going with that. You can't please everybody. That's I okay. Guess. Track by track? Track by track. Meat plow? Meat plow. If I am 100% honest, I have never known what any of these lyrics are. <laughs> something meat Some, plow. Something meat plow. Meat plow. Right. Meat plow. This song could easily be interpreted as a song about having sex with groupies on the road. It could. Uh, you know, just a meat plow, right? Yeah. Uh, but I believe this is actually about the media. I, okay. Or, or the paparazzi, or not. Uh, every time I read through the lyrics, <laughs> it looks like it could mean something else entirely. Uh, and part of me wants to attribute that to Scott Wieland, Wayland, being an excellent lyricist with tons of meanings in his songs, but that is giving him an awful lot of credit. True. Uh, my thoughts are that he is not a lyricist that has a lot to say, specifically. We've done episodes about 21 Pilots, and that is a lyricist poet that writes words first and then attaches a melody around it. I don't believe that Scott was like that. I believe the songs were written, and then he had to devise a a vocal melody and just wrote what was on his mind at that time. Hmm, I don't think he had a stable of lyrics to to be like, put music to all these. I think it was the other way around. Therefore, there are a lot of nonsensical lyrics on here. Yes. Stuff that when you read it like a piece of poetry, it makes no sense. A line like, they got these pictures of everything to break us down, yeah, to break me down. They make us hate, and we make it bleed. Uh, that sounds like an indictment of the media. You know, the, yeah. old, the old media line, if it bleeds, it leads. But then comb through the other lyrics, and I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure that I'm right about any of this. Well, I got, to, I got a theory, but to take a listen to this bass track first and okay. uh, see what you think. first no thanks because i'll tell you what man the meat plow is the music industry man oh the meat plow is the man in the big house plowing over all the artists with his big meat plow trying to get them to make more music or we're gonna turn you into the machine man why don't you turn into uh randy savage there i don't know (laughs) i don't know what happened uh i don't know that's i 
I definitely have I have seen it all many different ways. Uh, a lot of people have said it's an indictment of the media. A lot of people have said it's an indictment of the music industry. A lot of people have said it, it's an indictment of the uh, just general pop culture. I don't know. Interpret uh, it as you will. It is one of the hardest songs for me to get through on the record, which doesn't bode well when it's the first, the first song. Track. Because it's so discordant. The melodies, if you could call them that, are all over the map and not very pleasing to listen to in general. And I get it. You know, it's grunge. Uh, but they have the ability to write great melodies, as we will see. And we begin with one of the most frustrating aspects of Stone Temple Pilots as a band. They have two to three really good, catchy songs that are nicely crafted on each record. And then they have all this filler, all these non-relatable songs that are hard to listen to, hard to decipher. Uh, my feeling is that they were around now. They would sell pretty well because they could just release those really good poppy songs and it would be fine. It's funny that you would say that. I was just about to ask you that same question. If you felt like today they would be an even bit more successful yeah. band because they could just sell track by track. Yeah, because you'd put the three like the, the the three giants out and just like keep turning it over. Yeah. Why bother sitting down to make an entire record when we can just make, you know, Vaseline over and over yeah. again? Hey, Vaseline. What? Oh. That's the next song. Uh, and here is the flip side of that coin. Right? Why isn't this the lead track on the record? This is such a great song. Right. I do love to. You heard the story about the lyrics for this song, right? The which part? So, uh, the misheard lyric yeah, part? Yeah. So in an interview with uh, Greg Prado for uh, Song Facts, the website, uh, from December 3rd, 2015, uh, Scott Wayland said that the lyrics, uh, Flies Stuck in Vaseline, actually came from a misheard lyric. Uh, his parents were playing the Eagles song, Life in the Fast Lane, and Scott heard Flies in the Vaseline. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I don't know why. I just thought I read that and I laughed for about five minutes. So I was also very tired and kind of punch drunk. Well, if you were up down, if you were going down that rabbit hole, you were probably exhausted. I was, I was, I was exhausted. This uh, song was the second single from the record, reaching number one on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Track Chart, staying there for two weeks. It's a great sound to the song, yeah. and one of the songs that is really not ambivalent about what it's talking about. Oh, uh, yeah. Wayland has stated many times, including in his autobiography, that this is about his heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, that feeling of being stuck in the same situation, not being to get up, flies stuck in the Vaseline, yeah. as it were. Here, uh, ha- oh, oh, go ahead. I was going have a little listen. So uh, Vaseline, the product, Yeah, uh, that name, by the manufacturer's claims, it's derived from the German word Wasser and the Greek word Elian for olive oil. Mm. So water oil. So, song greatly benefits from the base work of uh, Robert DeLeo. He kind of shines through most of it, but he's also one of the, he's the main songwriter as well. Yeah. Uh, there's some speculation that the title of the song is a portmanteau of Vaseline the name brand lubricant, mm-hmm. and gasoline, 
perhaps suggesting that he's talking about some flammable mixture of the two. Hmm. My thoughts are that they probably would have had to secure some sort of copyright approval to use the actual name Vaseline because it's branded. It's spelled so, different. So just change the spelling a little bit and probably cleared them. Mm-hmm. And just say Vaseline. I will say that I, uh, <laughs> for some reason, I always get this song and the song Gasoline by Audio Slave <laughs> mixed up. And I don't know why. Like, if I just read the name, I'm like, I if I read the name Vaseline, I hear the Audio Slave song Gasoline in my head. How could you mix up versa. those two songs? I don't know. But okay. uh, real quick, what do you know about Vaseline the product? It's uh, slippery. <laughs> It was uh, invented by chemist Robert Chesborough. You mean petroleum jelly? Petroleum jelly. (gasps) Is that where petroleum comes up again in this episode? There it is. (laughs) Full circle. Full circle again. Invented in 1859 by Robert Chesborough, who who before this uh, had clarified kerosene oil from uh, sperm whales. I'm sorry, kerosene oil from sperm whales. Said Chesborough. Is he named after the clamp that we use to hold? Oh, I'm getting there. Oh, my God. How deep? How deep did you go? So, uh, anyways, this guy traveled the oil fields of Titusville, Pennsylvania, to research what new materials might be created from petroleum. There, he learned uh, that a residue called rod wax, (laughs) (laughs) rod wax, uh, that had had to be periodically removed from oil rig pumps, (laughs) that oil workers hated it, but they had been using the substance to heal cuts and burns on their bodies. Chesbro took samples of the rod wax back to Brooklyn, extracted the usable <laughs> petroleum jelly, and began manufacturing a medical product called Vaseline, uh, and he's actually patented it. It's U.S. patent number 127568. All jokes aside, however, please stop using Vaseline. Whatever? Uh, yeah. Okay. Don't use it to wax your rod or in any of your holes. <laughs> uh, in 2015, German consumer watchdog uh, Steitun Venetest... Uh, analyzed cosmetics containing mineral oils. After developing a new detection method, they found high concentrations of something called mineral oil aromatic hydrocarbons, or MOA, and even polyaromatics in products containing mineral oils. Uh, Vaseline products contain the most MOA of all tested cosmetics, up to 9%. The European Food Safety Authority sees MOA and polyaromatics as possibly carcinogenic. So based on the results, uh, God, I can never pronounce the name, Steifton VM test, uh, warns not to use Vaseline or any other products containing mineral oils on your person. So all these years, all these people uh, using Vaseline to you know coat their nipples or wax their rods or <laughs> heal their holes could have been giving yourselves cancer. Oh, my God. It's a carcinogenic, so yes, oh boy. it can cause cancer. To bring it around, though, to what you just asked, yeah. uh, Chesbro or potentially someone at his company that he founded many years ago may be the person that invented the Cheeseboro clamp. Oh, my God. Uh, sometimes calls the, called the... Uh, uh, cheeseburger clamp. I was just joking. No, dead serious. His company became Chesborough Manufacturing, and they did work with steel to um, build scaffolding stuff. I mean, a couple of them cheeseburgers. So, uh, yeah, in case anybody out there doesn't know, uh, in entertainment, there are these clamps called Chesboroughs that are like a weird double clamp that we use to hold pipes together. And a lot of people call them burgers or cheeseburgers. <laughs> cheeseburgers. Because we're dumb and we have nothing better to do with our time. Exactly. But uh, yeah, another uh, another little trip down the rabbit hole there. I like that trip. Randy, you're, are you going to put the uh, Reading Rainbow noise in here for me every time? <laughs> That's another trip down the rabbit hole. Bam, bam, bam. Thanks, LeVar Burton. But you don't have to take my word for it. Loungefly? Loungefly. We're starting to get into this weird area now where the songs aren't really bad, but they aren't great either. That's true. 
The sound of the song is all right. The guitar work on it is actually very good. And the ending guitar section is played, like as you mentioned, by Paul Leary yeah. from the Butthole Surfers. Uh, that part stands out compared to a lot of the others on the record, but it's just so grungy, yeah. you know? It's just so obviously grungy. The vocal work on it is pretty good as well. I don't mind uh, Scott in a lower register, kind of mumbly, you know? The lyrics are not so bad either. It's a song, to me anyway, about his lover who is willing to give him anything he wants, much to his detriment. She allows him to drink and get high all the time and isn't too worried about his dalliances with other ladies as long as she comes home or he comes home to her. Yeah. And he wants to be with her, but is coming to the realization that she really doesn't need him for anything. She just wants him there. So it, there's a, a cry in there for wanting to be needed instead of just wanting to be wanted. He's bringing nothing at all to the table, just uses and uses and uses, and she's fine with that. And he's starting to realize that that is a bit of a problem. It's actually quite a profound lyric and one of the better... the one of the better yeah. lyrics on the record, actually. The, it's uh, it's one of those songs, however, that starts to really suffer from the drummer's inability to keep time well. He drags the tempo so badly on this song <laughs> and several others that I will mention. Uh, it's frustrating because it makes a band that really specialized in the mid-tempo grungy tune get even slower. And now it's just a bit of bit of a drudgery you know it's I, I sat there and listened to this album in the studio here and tapped my foot to it and it was so draggy and then i got a metronome out because i have one upstairs <laughs> of course and it's all over the fucking map <laughs> and i'm i'm and don't worry it gets worse on the record <laughs> you got i know you i, I got a few notes about, about yeah. this one yeah uh so the opening of this song uh was used for years if you've never heard the song you for sure heard the opening if you watched MTV in the 90s, because it was used as the uh, opening to their MTV Newsbreak segments. Uh, it sounds a little like this. So those, uh, those tape manipulation effects where they play kind of backwards and forwards over and over. Yeah, that's them. Uh, they were probably directly influenced here by experiments that uh, David Bowie and Brian Wilson had both done with these same effects. Uh, and I say those two names specifically because uh, Stone Temple Pilots have covered songs by both of them, uh, and the extended version of this album has those covers on them. So they covered uh, Andy Warhol by David Bowie and uh, She Knows Me Too Well by the Beach Boys. Not great covers, but uh, they are definitely songs by other artists that they played. They are definitely other. They are definitely songs by other people. <laughs> yes, uh, Eric Kretz said in a Billboard interview uh, by Ron Hart from November fifth, twenty nineteen, for Loungefly, Robert had this whole part worked out in his head where he's playing the harmonics on an opening tuning of his twelve string guitar and would then run it backwards, so that the decay is before the note. The more we delved into the studio, the more we discovered uh, what we could do. You listen to all those great Queen and Zeppelin albums. Uh, and there's just so much going on there that you have to ask yourself, how are they getting all those effects? Mm. So makes mm -hmm. me wonder if this was literally just them fucking around with some effects. Oh, I'm sure. Time in the studio. Yeah. Although they recorded it a month, but I'm sure they had done. Uh, yeah. So uh, like you said, Paul Leary from the Butthole Surfers is credited with playing the ending guitar solo for this song. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds a little bit like this. Mm -hmm. 
feel like I did a bad fade on the end of that one. <laughs> Sorry, Randy. <laughs> Just cuts. Sorry. Uh, anyways, yeah, it's um, the lyric uh, from this song. Uh, she said she'd be my woman. She said she'd, she'd be, be my, my man. man. Is from uh, uh, this song, obviously. And then it also appears in the Mighty Joe Young demo tape song, uh, Spanish Flies. Mm. So recycling lyrics. Lots of flies. Lots of we flies. We got flies in the Vaseline. We got a lounge fly. We got more flies. Yeah. No problem with flies. Are there a lot of flies on the interstate? There are a lot of flies on the interstate. There's so many that I wrote a love song to the flies called Interstate Love Song. <laughs> what the hell is this? A country song in the middle of this album? Oh, this is what's absolutely so vexing about this band, though. They write clunkers and indecipherable songs, and they come back with this absolute Gemma song, a song that may be one of the best songs to come out of that era by any band. Agreed. I love this song. Uh, obvi- the, what? Go this ahead. is actually, this song is the reason I picked this album over Core. Ah. So. I knew more about I, Core. But- I, I, core, I honestly think, is a better album as a whole album. Oh, for sure. This song My swung opinion. me this direction. Our uh, opinions. Yes, our opinions. This song, obviously, released as a single, ended up replacing the last single, Vaseline, on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Chart at number one, where Vaseline had been for two weeks. Uh, this song proceeded to stay on the top of the chart, as you mentioned earlier, for the next 15 weeks, a record at that time. Also peaked at number two on the Billboard Rock Modern or Modern Rock Chart, also known as the Alternative Chart. Mm. Uh, VH1 named it the 58th best rock song of all time. Which is pretty damn high on that list. Yeah. Top 100. That's pretty big. Out of all rock and roll. Uh, that's not grunge. That's not like 90s. That is all rock and roll of all time. That's a lot of songs. That's a lot of songs and a lot of bands and a lot of amazing songs. Uh, song was composed by the bassist Robert DeLeo way back during the sessions for their first album, Core. Um, originally constructed as a bossa nova number. Yeah. I would like to hear it like that. <laughs> Share some similarities with the Jim Croce song, I've Got a Name. Some similarities, huh? Yeah. After reading that, I did a side-by-side with them, and hey, there are some similar chord structures throughout the song, but they, they sound different enough. I think through the course of time, that's hard to avoid. You're going to find some similarities with a lot of songs. I don't think that was necessarily intentional. I don't, also, feel, I don't feel like it was lifting. That Jim Croce song also has the lyric in it, uh, moving me down the highway, rolling me down the highway. Right. Might be might be slightly related, might be a little influential. It may there. have been subconscious, yeah. Surprise, though, another song that's all about Scott Whelan's drug addiction. Right, but this time from his wife, yeah. Janina's point of view. Yeah, he felt bad about lying to her, so he, he had made a promise to stay off drugs while they were recording this album in Atlanta, which he didn't do. Womp womp. Uh, he told her he did. He told her he did. Lied to her. What I think is most interesting about that, too, is in the music video for this, there's a character who has a Pinocchio nose that grows throughout the music video. Mm. Hmm. Trying to say something mm. there? Foreshadowing. Right? You know, here's you, you have already for sure heard this uh, song, especially this intro here, but uh, have a little listen again.
my God. What can I say about this song? This song takes me back to the summer of 1994, Park City, Utah. Uh, my mom's family used to get together almost every year for a little uh, sort of family reunion on a three-day weekend. We would all go up. Uh, my grandparents owned a condo in Park City that they rented during the winter, but nobody wants to be there in the summer. Mm-hmm. And it's a fantastic place to be in the summer. I go it's, there. It's cool. They have a fun old Main Street. There's a trolley. Uh, there's yeah. this thing called the Alpine slide, which, the slide. Yeah. Which, Heather's done the slide. Yeah. Oh dude, it's so much fun, but it's uh, it will murder you. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, you will be bloody if you're you not get careful a little on. murdered. It's a lot of fun though. But, uh, I remember 1984. I remember this album. Uh, you know, we talk about who influences our music choices all sure. the time. I had older cousins. And this album was in heavy rotation that whole weekend. I remember looking at the cover. I remember looking at the back cover and being like, 12 luscious songs. What the fuck is this? Uh, I remember listening to this song over and over and over again that whole weekend. And it has stuck in there forever. 1995, huh? Yeah. Did I say 94? No. I don't, you may have. But what were you? 12? Uh, 11. <laughs> would have been 11 in 90. Actually, I would have been 10 when this came out. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah. Right. You're welcome. Uh, but uh, on a little short side note there, one of the uh, people who did influ- influence a lot of the music that I listened to, my older cousin, yes. Steve, um, he worked at uh, Blockbuster Music. Oh, yeah. Do you remember Blockbuster Music? Sure. I was trying to talk to somebody about this the other day, and she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, Blockbuster Music. And she's like, you mean they rented music? I'm like, no, no. It was a music store, but it had all the same theming as Blockbuster Video. Yeah. And they were usually right next to Blockbuster Video. Correct. Well, but they didn't rent music? No, you no. actually went in there to buy it. Then why was it called Blockbuster? Fucked if I know it was it's Synergy. Just- <laughs> it was the 90s. That's what people did. It's just a brand. But uh, yeah. Don't worry about it. This song has some good memories for me. That's and good. That's why I picked this album. But it's the, a fantastic song. It is. It's a song that will far outlive the band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, whatever still remains. Whatever still remains, which is the next track. Mm-hmm. The s- uh, song starts off so promising, but kind of predictable with the guitar work. Uh, yeah. The vocal melody through the verses, it's, it sounds like such a struggle for him. Yeah. It feels like he's straining to find a comfortable spot to lay that melody in, and there isn't one. And he's just searching and searching until the chorus gets there, because it just noodles around in the verses. I feel like the chorus is pretty similar melodically to a few of their other songs, and it's just not that memorable. Yeah. However, I will say that the bass line, again, stands out. Yes. Um, lyrically, this is a tough one to listen to, you know? Pretty clearly a love song, but it's a borderline obsession song. Uh, it's about a dude that is so in love with his lady that he wants to be with her even after they die, which isn't that obsessive. That's normal. It's more of how he wants it. The line is, if you should die before me, ask if you can bring a friend, pick a flower, hold your breath, and drift away. He wants to die with her when she goes. Yeah. If she goes first. Uh, It's pretty heady stuff, pretty emotional. Uh, As vague as his lyrics tend to be, some of them aren't horrible. I will agree with that. Yeah. This is, uh, it's not a real standout song, like you said. No. Here's a a little clip of uh, what this one sounds like.
It's like every fill sounds exactly the same way. <laughs> Maybe he only knows one. I think he does. Yeah, he's got like 18-inch hi-hats. Freaking huge. I, I want it on the record that I have never loved anybody enough to drink their bath water. No, no. Yeah, not, uh... No, not, no. 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 It's just not... Mm-mm. Nope. I remember uh, a few few years ago, maybe now, Uh-oh. some guy on the internet oh. bought oh, a yeah. YouTuber's bath water and then drank it and then got real sick. Did we talk like, about this at the show one time? I think we did, yeah. <laughs> like, what so the... So gross. <laughs> I'll bet he paid a pretty penny for it, too. Oh, that was a good one. A good that was, a, that right? was like teeing it up for you. Right. Uh, next song, obviously, called Pretty Penny. I'm so confused as to how this fits in on the record. Yeah, this one feels like it was one that they cut it, probably could have just done without, and they would have been fine. It's an interlude-ish type yeah. thing. It would it'd be nice for MTV Unplugged. Yeah, it's it's a weird... It's a weird fit on this record. It's a weird fit between these two songs. Yeah. I don't uh, don't understand what any of it means either. Apparently, they wrote it on the floor of producer Brendan O'Brien's friend's house with an 8-track machine. Uh, Clay Harper was his name. uh, With all of it just coming together. And then Wayland Wayland went home and uh, wrote the melody and the lyrics. Sorry, I keep doing that. It's okay. Honestly, you're probably right. It's Wayland. Wayland? Wayland. And I keep pronouncing it Wayland. So Uh, let's just just fuck with people from now on. It's it's Wayland. Oh, half the show. Yeah. The second half is Wayland. There are conflicting reports as to what it's about. Uh, He says in one instance that this is an introspective song from his subconscious, and he didn't even realize it until he listened to the whole album playback. If so, then what is it about? Uh, Another instance... He said that it was about a man named Robert Parano and his family. No one knows about the validity of this either because no one else in the band has ever confirmed or denied it. Yeah. There's also a lot of people who say that this was a last desperate attempt to prove to himself that he was not a drug addict by writing a song about two drug addicts. But <laughs> So I guess that's one way to do it. it. It's. I'm pretty sure he wrote these lyrics pretty high. Oh, yeah. Because it doesn't make any sense. Well, here, see what you think. All right. When you wake in the morning, gone When you find that there's no one sleeping, gone Pretty Penny was her name She was loved and we all will miss her Uh, Matthew, the look on your face is what I picture it looking like when you pass a kidney stone. Uh, Just a pain, like, ooh, ooh. Yeah. The song was released as a single in 1995, actually reached number 12 on the mainstream rock chart, no doubt buoyed by the success of the prior two singles. Yeah. I don't think it would have reached that high on its own merits. I don't understand. Fucking camera. I'm not even going to worry about it right now. You got more on this song? No. I, uh, I'm just going to buy a new card. That's a good, that's probably the right thing to do. Uh, Silver Gun Superman. Hey, it's another song about heroin. It's my favorite song on the record, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Dark and awesome. The riff is fantastic. The only thing that ruins an otherwise great song is the ending. Mm. So not only does the normal drummer, Eric Kretz, have difficulty with the meter again, which he does, but now they let the guitarist, (laughs) Dean Toledo, play the drums on the ride out, and what begins as some off-tempo nonsense turns into just a whole clusterfuck by the end. Mm. Uh, I I get it. 
That was the order of the day. Act like we're just fucking around in the studio and it's all fun and games. Clang, 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 boom, boom. Ha, ha, ha. But you trashed a perfectly good song with that shit. <clears throat> Other than that, the guitar work on the song, especially at the end, is excellent. Yes, it's got that very deep, guttural sort of guitar sound at the beginning. So supposedly, mm-hmm. a silver gun is slang for a needle. Hypodermic, yeah. I feel like that is bullshit. I, I've I've never once heard that before reading about this song. So, <laughs> me and I'm well into heroin culture. Obviously, right. yeah, well, uh, I'm the person who defined heroin chic. So uh, allegedly, he's allegedly a, uh, like reveling in his own expertise with the the hypodermic. Uh, I visit a lot of message boards, though, mm-hmm. that seem to believe that this song is about the relationship between Wheeland and the main songwriter and bassist Robert DeLeo. Hmm. Personally, I think it is actually about both. Uh, I think he's addressing the fact that they were actually really good friends when they formed the band, but it seems as though Heroin is his new best friend, and he really can't and doesn't really seem to want to extricate himself from that relationship at all. Uh, he's willing to throw away those relationships for the drug. The, the line in there, wait for me, take a dive, take a piece of my life, leave me numb. It all seems to be right there. Yeah. But there are some great references in there to, uh, it, I saw a lot of fans kind of dig deep into the relationship between Robert uh, DeLeo and and Scott Whelan and how they were at loggerheads for a okay. while. And uh, I think perhaps it's about both things. I've never heard it referred to as a silver gun in my life. Yeah, that's it was a weird, like, I was like, Silver Gun Superman. Oh, interesting. When I got my COVID like, vaccine, I'm like, hey, go ahead and throw that Silver Gun right in there, right in the old bicep. Gun. Yeah, right in Slap there. it in good. there. Mind the heroin scars. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I feel like that explanation might, might be a, a big empty, though, Matthew. Oh, boy. That was a bad one. I got to stop doing this, that. <laughs> I, gotta, I feel like that's Actually, I've a, talked to a couple people that like it. Oh, really? Yeah. All right, then I'll keep doing it. Yeah. I just said we're really good at that. I'm like, really? She's yeah. like, yeah, I like it. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Boy. Wait, you talked to your wife about that? Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know if I believe Heather. Yeah, well, we're... <laughs> She's she's lying to you. She's she's lying to keep my feelings from being hurt. Maybe. No. Whoosh. <laughs> this song predates the release of the record by seven months. Yeah. This but, was actually recorded for the Crow soundtrack. Yeah, May 25th, 1993. And performed on MTV Unplugged. Mm-hmm. It wasn't shown on the aired version of that special, but the video that was recorded for it would be placed in serious heavy rotation. Yes. When it was released as the first single from Purple in May 1994. Purple. Uh, this song would start the long line of hits from this record, reach number three on the mainstream rock chart, number seven on the modern rock chart. It's a good song, actually, but super formulaic in terms of STP. Uh, the slow acoustic part, the much bigger chorus, a lyric that is all about the lead singer's love affair with heroin. <laughs> what? Wait, are, is this song about heroin? 
Uh, this is that conversation that the addict has with himself. The, quote, this will be the last time I do this, I will stop tomorrow conversation. Mm. Uh, it has my two favorite lines from the record in it, though. Oh. Too much walking, shoes worn thin. Too much tripping, and my soul's wore thin. Uh, oh. See? Soul and soul. soul. I like I actually like that. I'm like, hmm, a lot of great symbolism there about the tolls that drugs take, both physically and spiritually. Fair, very well-written song from the lyrical standpoint. Musically, it's pretty predictable, but it's all right. Uh, do you have this note, interesting note about this song? Mentioned Ooh. that it was written for the Crow soundtrack? Yes. So you, apparently they had written a different song mm -hmm. called Only Dying. Yes. Uh, but when they learned about Brandon Lee's accidental death during filming, they scrapped it and wrote this instead. Yes, which probably a good choice. Uh, here's a little uh, sample of the Big Empty. I'm sorry, Big Empty. Smoke a cigarette and last some more. These conversations kill. Falling faster in my car. Time to take her home. easy here. This like this song is kind of a sleeper hit from this album it was a hit like i mean it was a hit at the time but it's not one like if you ask somebody about this album they're gonna mention meat plow and vaseline and <clears throat> interstate love song they mentioned meat plow be just because it's the opening track and it has that weird i don't know for me that sticks in my brain it's not a good song mm. but it sticks in my brain for some reason as the song that you would mention off this and big empty is one that i kind of feel like Gets washed into the background. Mm. I always remembered this one. I just oh, that's good. I remembered the song. I just didn't realize it was ever on this record. Mm. But yeah, it's okay. Well, makes me come unglued. Oh my god, really? Yeah. This almost punk song that's shoehorned in here, and yet another genre. <laughs> Short little song, you know, two thirty four. Yep. Pretty good riff to start, and then devolves into very familiar SDP territory. Does anyone else hear uh, the similarities in the verse section to uh, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana? Do you listen to it? It sounds so much it, like freaking Nirvana. I would say, yeah, I could see that. It's it's very it's just a really very expected song at this point. Released as a single, would chart at number eight on the mainstream rock chart, number sixteen on the modern rock chart. But it's kind of fluff, other than the fact that it's another song about heroin. Yeah, it actually reminds me a lot of uh, <laughs> Scott Whalen's uh, Whelan's Whelan Whalen's <laughs> Scott Whelan Whalen's uh, whatever we're calling him now. Whelan. Uh, his future at the time project, uh, Velvet Revolver. Yeah. Which, you know, is certainly a project. Do you have a clip of this one? I do have a clip yeah? of this one. Yeah, here's a, here's a little clip. little bit of a short clip but it's a little bit of a short song i just realized something too yes uh, a lot of the clips that i picked from this are guitar solo clips that's okay like uh almost all of them in fact 
but the guitar kind of dominates. Right. Uh, the only thing of note that I found about this song is that this was the last ever song performed by Scott Wheeland live. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's pretty sad. It was also the last song performed by Scott Wayland live. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a double sort of sad. Thing. That is, it's two times, two times the sadness. Yeah. They uh, uh, they performed this on uh, David Letterman, uh, <laughs> December nineteen ninety four, and apparently it's a pretty good performance. I actually couldn't find a good video of it though. No, so That's, you couldn't find a good video of someone filming their VHS copy right? of a TV. Yeah, who would have thought? <laughs> Why don't you digitize it? No, no, no. I'll just hold my iPhone. Yeah, on the TV, tape it. It's got all the scan lines and shit. <laughs> Army, Track. Army Track. ants. Army ants. Army ants. Uh, I love the ethereal opening for this song. Yeah, it's a good hook. I think it lures you into this uh, false sense of peace before the song actually starts. Uh, have a listen. I actually dig this song it's it's a fun little song it actually would uh it would i, I grew to like it more and more every time i listened to it hmm. as we were doing uh, as i was doing the research it's different for them the tempo is much faster than pretty much anything else in their catalog yeah um the whole band plays really well including the drummer go figure uh the structure of the song reminds me a lot of red hot chili peppers of that time yes right before they abandoned funk almost entirely mostly around the blood sugar sex magic at the time and what do we have here? It is a song that is not about heroin. Right? But a song about intolerance. And racism. Hooray. Hello. Very interesting and prescient for its day. Right? Very open indictment of society and how we all line up like army ants instead of uh, fighting intolerance. Yeah. As relevant today as it was back then, unfortunately. Sadly, yes. Uh, we are now only slightly more tolerant than we were then. That line in there, you can't deal with the way I pray, no more relevant than now. Right? It's a good song. I like it. Yet another uh, completely different sound on this album. Yeah, this one's from uh, any of the field. previous tracks. And yeah, it's uh, like I said, it's got this weird slow opening that just immediately cranks in to a fun, upbeat song. Mm. Uh, you know what else is fun? The name of the next song, Kitchenware and Candy Bars. Such a fun name for a song about abortion. Another STP opening that sounds a little like Nirvana. I'm not sure why I noticed that. But it uh, it stands out. The harmony parts stand out in this song, as do some of the guitar parts towards the bridge. Uh, not about heroin, like you said. Uh, Scott Whelan, Whelan uh, talked about on VH1 Storytellers. It's a song about abortion. Yeah, he said uh, in a quote, uh, it's about a painful and heartbreaking experience when a former partner and I went through an abortion. It was a difficult choice for both of us, but thank God we were able to have that choice. thought that was a nice quote. Yeah. I also like the fact that he can actually create something out of such a, a horrible, but also sort of good experience for them that he was able to create something that can, you know, get other people talking about it, sure. if nothing else. And it's a weird song to technically end the record on, because mm-hmm. this is theoretically the last song. Yeah, it, uh, it fades out after about four minutes and 25 seconds. Uh, because what's this? 
a hidden track. The classic 90s move. Right? And I believe this is the first hidden track we've talked about, right? I think it is. And what a weird one to start with. Because, uh, uh, we go, you know what? You go ahead and run with this. I know you got, right, you cool. got a lot about this. You so, go uh, ahead. This, I'm going to uh, kick back and uh, relax. This hidden track, <laughs> Matthew's going to go shoot up some heroin. <laughs> get my uh, silver gun out. Yeah, and, that's, that's uh, perfect. Just to just uh, lean back, uh, smoke uh, a little rock. Everything little, will be fine. Get a little big empty uh, all over here. Yeah. So uh, four minutes and 55 seconds into this, 30 seconds after the oh, previous oh. song ended. Oh, yeah. He's doing it good. Yeah. Uh, uh, suddenly, a hidden track appears out of nowhere, and it sounds a little bit like this. The second album, 12 precious melodies worth listening, hope you enjoy them. Oh my god, that's so bad. Right? What is what is nuts about this is I have never heard of a hidden track that was had nothing to do with the artists, nothing to do with the album, nothing to do with anything. Well, it is about the album. It's completely self-referential. Oh yeah. But I feel like this song is the reason they made a lot of the choices on the album. (laughs) So this song is is performed by uh, Richard Pedersen, and it wasn't created for this album. Uh, it's the first track on his album called The Second Album. Uh, Richard Pedersen, if you don't know, is a Seattle area musician who plays trumpet and piano, composes all his own music, and happens to be a big fan of Johnny Mathis, hence the reference to him in this song. Uh, quote, this album cover looks similar like Johnny Mathis. Oh, full circle again. Full circle again. The cover to The Second Album. Uh, the Richard Pedersen second album uh, has Richard Pedersen standing with his arms outstretched like Johnny Mathis on the cover of his 1964 album, The Wonderful World of Make Believe. And obviously, like we already mentioned once at the beginning, the cover for Purple uh-huh. is a direct reference to another Johnny Mathis album, Olay. Uh, and it's a reference uh, from the lyrics in this song to the cover of The Wonderful World. Of- oh my God. Cover There's of- also. A reference from the lyrics in this song to the cover of The Wonderful World of Make-Believe. So it's a double Johnny Mathis reference album cover. A lot of Johnny Mathis right? going on uh, here. Also, if you've never listened to Olay by Johnny Mathis, uh, go listen to it. It's a fun album. He's a classic crooner. It is. This one, however, all in Spanish. Uh, it's Spanish covers of English language chart hits like Granada by Frank Sinatra, uh, Serenata by Sarah Vaughn, and Babalu. Uh, which is the song Desi Arnaz uh, as Ricky Ricardo performs in episodes of I Love Lucy. Uh, Also check out uh, Samba de Orfeo uh, from the film Orfeo Negro or Black Orpheus. Uh, It's very famous. You'll recognize it once you hear it. I should have gotten a clip of it, but I didn't. So that's it. That's purple. All in all, it's not a horrible album by any stretch. It contains some really good songs. Yes. I think what it suffers through the most is unevenness Mm -hmm. has some shitty songs some wonderful songs and i wonder uh what it would have become if uh wheeland had his head on straight for the whole thing yeah uh we'd like to know what you think do i there's two more things oh you have more i I can't even oh okay i can't even get that out yet i'm sorry not for pete's sake the one thing i gotta mention this was remixed in 2019 yep uh i think the remix sounds like balls I think it sounds like balls. I'm sorry to whoever did the work on it. It sounds really blown out. There's no dynamics left in it. It sounds horrible. If you have the opportunity, I know the remix is the one that's on, you know, Spotify and iTunes and all of those. If you have the opportunity to go listen to the original, if you can do it, it sounds much better. 
There's also uh, the only good thing about the remix is the disc two and disc three of the remix. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. And on I there. know we don't usually talk about the extensions to albums, but this one is so big and there's a lot on here that's pretty good. You're uh, ruining it. I'm oh, ruining it. I'm ruining our record. Uh, disc two highlights include an acoustic version of Big Empty, which is really good. A demo of Army Ants that's very interesting. A cover of Led Zeppelin's Dancing Days. A cover of the Beach Boys' She Knows Me Too Well that we talked about a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. A live acoustic cover of Christmas Time is Here from a Charlie Brown Christmas, which weird. is very weird. Uh, there's also the uh, David Bowie uh, cover of Andy Warhol. I'm sorry. Their cover of David Bowie's Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. And then disc three of the remix or the re-release is uh it's a concert uh, recording from live at New Haven Veterans Memorial Coliseum in New Haven, Connecticut on 8-23-1994. It is a very interesting live recording. Uh it's it's I don't know if it's good or bad honestly. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell. It is a mediocre live recording, but it's it's worth a quick listen. Okay. All right. And that's it. That's purple. So, uh do we have it right or wrong on purple? Our uh are my memories of the mid-90s music completely clouded by time or music that has come since? You need to tell me. And us. You can Please. message us most effectively on Twitter at Audio Judo or Facebook at Audio Judo or Instagram at Audio underscore Judo. Uh, if you want to send an email, you can do that at info at AudioJudo.com. Kyle, you want to handle the Patreon Yeah, stuff? absolutely. Uh, so if you like what you're hearing right now and you want to hear more of it, you can go to Patreon.com forward slash audio judo uh, or through our website audiojudo.com there's a link now with uh, double the burps yes now with double the burps uh you can sign up uh, we have two patreon tiers our front row seats tier is five dollars a month uh, this tier includes a uh, two-day early access to episodes a uh, shout out on future episodes as a loyal producer of the podcast uh bonus mini episodes called judo chops which are a lot of fun uh, they're like 10 to 15 minutes long, and they have a lot of stuff that we can't include in the regular episodes. There's also occasional bonus content, such as unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and tiny tidbits that got cut out of uh, several different episodes. Tidbits. Tidbits. The next, step, uh, the next step up is the backstage pass. It's a little bit of a big step. It's $20 a month. However... The big deal here is that you get a chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo with us. Uh, that activates after one year of paying the $20 a month, and you can only do it once. But we will host uh, you and talk about pretty much whatever album you want. Yep. So if you are a musician and want us to talk about your album, there's an in. Yep. Uh, at that tier, you also get all the t- uh, benefits of the previous tier and a very special personalized gift. And I believe Matthew posted some photos. I did. Of our first patron at that level. Uh, getting his personalized gift. I did. A couple of weeks ago on Instagram and Facebook, right? Yep. yep. So go check those out if you want to see what you get. Other than that, we have episodes on the way about Depeche Mode, Metallica, Joy Division, and a special episode about bands that only released one album. Oh, yeah. Uh, check those out. And other than that, we will see you all in two weeks. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. 
Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. 